Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and you know, one thing that comes up a lot in my conversations with CI and competitive enablement leaders is there is really no playbook for them to follow when they got started. There's there's no step-by-step guide. And really the best advice came from connecting with people, picking brains, and really just leaning on others' experiences. And that's really kind of a crucial part of our mission here at the Competitive Enablement Shop. We want to bring on experts that can share their knowledge so that you can set yourself up for success if you're building a competitive program from the ground up, or you can take it to the next level if you're already running competitive at your organization. Today, I was joined by Alex McDonald, who is a true competitive expert with a ton of experience building competitive programs at Envision, Airtable, plus this extensive background in running win-loss at Eigenworks. Alex has also recently launched a course, the Competitive Intelligence Certified course with the PMA. Uh, More info on that will be in the show notes and we get into it a little bit to open the episode off. In the episode, we got into a lot, but really it's centered around the competitive strategies that Alex has built and how he really puts them into action. Alex shared what he did to build Envision's competitive positioning from scratch. Zero, nada. He also shared some of his most successful and unsuccessful competitive strategies, how he partners with the enablement team at Airtable to get sales to not only use, but nail the competitive plays that are being built. Plus, Alex shares why he believes that supporting these ad hoc sales requests doesn't necessarily have to come at the expense of scalability. Also, I'd be remiss if I didn't plug our own newest competitive newsletter, the Coffee and Compete, that myself and our great producer, Ben, share on a weekly basis. It hits your inbox every Sunday morning, five minutes or less, competitive strategies, a roundup of our favorite competitive content from the week, and some poorly worded puns. Plus, we do also share out a special feature story every month. Our upcoming one will be taking a look at the competition for electric vehicle supremacy and why it's no longer lonely at the top for Tesla. So a link to subscribe to that is also in the show notes. Would love for you to join and be a part of that as well. With all that said, let's get into today's episode. All right. Today, I am joined by Alex McDonald the market and competitive intelligence lead at Airtable. Prior to his time at Airtable, Alex built the competitive program at Envision from the ground up. He spent several years at Eigenworks leading the win-loss research for clients in the B2B space and has now recently launched a course called Competitive Intelligence Certified with our friends over at the Product Marketing Alliance. Alex, thanks for joining me. Yes, thanks for having me, Adam. And for anyone that doesn't get to see the video, Alex has a festive sweater on. <laughs> um, we're already in the Christmas spirit. That's right. Uh, so let's let's kick off. First of all, let's get into this course you created with the Product Marketing Alliance. For our listeners, if you're not in the Product Marketing Alliance already, join. And they, they create a bunch of great reports, create a bunch of courses. Um, and so this is one of the first ones I've seen around CI. So Could you explain to our listeners kind of a little bit about what that course looks like? Yeah. So for me, uh, when I first started taking on competitive Intel responsibilities, I learned a lot through trial and error, uh, getting involved with sales reps, with product managers, fellow marketers, uh, you know, sort of running off and, and, and doing some research, taking their questions, pulling things together. Didn't always stick, didn't always land. 
Um, but from building now, the Airtable is my third in-house competitive intelligence function from doing some of that win-loss and CI consulting work across the, the B2B space. I feel like I, uh, I've learned a ton. I've got a lot of perspectives. And I've also met a lot of people who had a very similar experience to me, where they were a team of one or on their own island and kind of learning things the hard way. Uh, when, you know, all this time, I felt like we, uh, we could have been learning from each other. And so uh, collaborating with, with the PMA uh, to build this course was a really rewarding experience. I, I found I actually learned a ton about my own process, um, my own sort of uh, research methods and enablement methods by having to put it down uh, on, on paper and, and write the script and produce the videos and create all the resources. You learn so much uh, about a subject by by trying to go through and, and actually teach it with to, to someone else. So we cover everything from kind of building uh, the core CI function, how you listen to the market, how you listen internally, uh, how you build a point of view on what's happening in your market, running win loss, then out to bringing competitive intel out to all those different groups that can use it and actually enabling sellers, customer success managers, fellow marketers, product managers, uh, all the way to the more strategic conversations with executives. And so that they can kind of be more informed uh, in their in their day to day. So uh, that's the kind of the shape of the course and, and where it came from. What was your favorite part of the course to research or work on or, or film? Probably the module on win loss analysis. I, I've just learned so much about all the nuances of running a great win loss program from my time at Eigenworks that you mentioned. Um, Eigenworks as, as kind of uh, been reborn as a company, uh, as Iceberg IQ. I know you had Natasha on the podcast recently. Oh, yeah. So I, I know her and that team so well. Um, they're amazing. And the, the sort of mentor figure uh, for me, there was Alan Armstrong. Um, he was, uh, he was just so, so, uh, sophisticated and experienced about the, the art and science of, of a win-loss program and particularly the win-loss interview. And he, he had so many, um, so much wisdom about how to get people to, uh, to feel comfortable with you in that interview, to open up and to tell the story about what is often usually a very nuanced, complex, multi-stakeholder, highly considered buying journey that they have been on. Um, people just have so much to tell you that is behind kind of the, the ultimate uh, decision of whether they went with you or went with a competitor. There's so much to unpack behind that. And so I, I felt like I had a lot, a lot to share there from, from those lessons and, and running some of my own programs. And I, I think what I really enjoyed about that module is that, you know, we, we kind of start with, with, with bigger things about the impact of a win-loss program, how to structure it, your overall strategy for win-loss. But we get all the way down to like specific wording that you want to use or avoid on a win-loss interview, all things that I, I, I learned from that, uh, that amazing experience with Eigenworks. So that like hyper, hyper tactical stuff I can get really geeky about too. Perfect. So for listeners, I, if you're not <laughs> sold already, then I, I don't know what else to tell you, but we'll put the, the link to the course as well in our show notes to the podcast. You can access it and obviously reach out to myself or Alex for more information on that. But yeah, I've, I've had a chance to look through the course as well. There's a bunch of other speakers as well. So other competitive leads from Slack. I think you've got Claire from Slack. I believe yep. Andrew from ClickUp as well. So there's some great names and Honestly, it's one of the most comprehensive pieces I've seen. Like I'm taking notes. I've been going to that resource a bunch recently. So cool. yeah, good to hear. And hey, we were we were glad to have the support of uh, of Clue as a sponsor as well. So let's get into today's episode, what we came to talk about. And for this episode, I wanted to 
pick your brain about the whole enablement side of things. So you've got all of this competitive intel you're collecting. There's all of this market research you're conducting. And how do you really put that into action to help win more deals? Specifically, we'll look at the sales team. I know that CS as well is an interesting piece based on my conversation with Natasha last week. Like it's a really interesting space as well to talk about, but I want to walk through how you enable sales teams with these winning competitive strategies. If I think about our audience, there's probably a fair few that are building a competitive program out for the first time. Like you mentioned that you've kind of been doing, you've done in your previous role, like kind of trial and error, trial and error. So when you started at Envision and you built not only the competitive program, but all of the competitive positioning from scratch, where do you start? For me, it always starts with uh, those relationships with the customer-facing teams, and it's it's both sales and customer success. I think especially uh, now that you know so many products are um, are, are so product-led, and and obviously in, in SaaS, the subscription model is is kind of the the DNA of this whole industry. Um, it's not just about that that the folks that deal with that new business moment, uh, those new business sellers. That's kind of the the historical bias for for sales support functions like this. Um, but bringing those uh, those CSMs and maybe growth account executives or account managers, whatever you call them, um, into the picture as well has been super important. They have so much to share. They have so much wisdom that they have learned through having these conversations all the time. Um, solution engineers or sales engineers, those technical sellers, also can can have a ton of insight to say, insight to share. And so for me, the the process of actually developing competitive positioning is is much. Uh, much more like kind of journalism and sort of collecting all these different quotes and stories and anecdotes from people than it is like any sort of, you know, creative writing. Like I just sit down with a blank page and, and, and you know, describe uh, from scratch how, how our product is different. It, it, in fact, it's more a process of collecting what is probably too many ideas and distilling them down to those crucial one or two or three points uh, that are going to separate us from the competition. And then distilling them again to say that, okay, we don't just need points for this competitor and a separate set of points for this competitor and this competitor. We actually need a durable set of competitive positioning statements that can cut across any competitor that we're up against. The, 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 the categories and subcategories in SaaS right now are so sprawling and overlapping. Our sellers are almost certainly going to find themselves up against competitors that we have not done a full deep dive on or that we don't have a specific battle card prepared for. And so they need to have those competitive positioning statements that are almost uh, universally durable. That's hard to get to. And it's really hard to get to the five or seven word version of them. And so uh, for me, that process is really about creating all those relationships, um, you know, setting it up as, as a two-way street, as a process where you know, I want to learn from you and your experience in the field. And what you're going to get back is really clear talking points so that you have compelling, confident, consistent responses when you're asked about the competition. Um, and I've, I've always found that those customer facing teams are incredibly eager to be involved in that process uh, when it's framed that way. So that's kind of the starting point. So obviously building that relationship with the customer facing teams, critical, and you're starting from scratch here at Envision. What, what are some of the questions you would ask them? To, to get information that you that you need or the information you know that's going to help you pinpoint, like you said, that five to seven word positioning statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you have, you know, if, you, if you're able to line up a few interviews with, with some of your sellers or CSMs, 
you might start by asking questions uh, before you get into like, what do you say when this competitor comes up? That's ultimately what we're trying to get to. But you might start with questions that are a little more uh, plain and descriptive, which is like, when do they come up? Uh, do they come up with a certain type of buyer, a certain type of customer? You try to get a sense of, of kind of the when and where a competitor comes up before you um, start thinking about exactly what to say, because that context matters a lot. If, if, if a type of competitor is coming up only with a certain maybe segment of the market or a certain buyer uh, or a certain persona, that's going to affect the, the messaging. So you kind of want to size that up. Um, and then I would, I would suggest asking them to draw on, uh, on, on some specific examples. Now that we have these sales call intelligence platforms, you can even, you know, be, it's reasonable to ask them to actually send you the, send you the clips, send you the receipts for a, a real call, a real customer interaction where these competitors came up. Um, also, I find it really powerful to offer your support, especially as you're getting started in supporting them on some upcoming conversations where a competitor might be coming up. Uh, a sales rep might, might proactively ask you for this. And so I would be ready for it. Uh, and, and urge you to say yes, especially as you get going to say, hey, I hear you're doing more work on competitive. I have a customer meeting next week and they told me they're also evaluating such and such. Would you be open to joining, um, you know, at least join some kind of internal prep call uh, to talk through the strategy and then make sure you get a debrief from them on how it went. So I, I find it's really important to, to, to not be shy about getting involved at the deal level, asking those specific questions, try to get a sense of when and where competitors are coming up. And then whether it's through joining those calls yourself or listening to the clips on your sales call uh, recording platform, uh, you can get a sense of what talking points or angles or ideas are clicking with customers. And maybe there are other ones that your team is kind of throwing out there as talking points that they've sort of always used or they've gotten a little comfortable with, maybe a little too comfortable that aren't actually clicking. And you can kind of take note of that and, and maybe let that fall away when you distill uh, what you've heard and, and produce your next pass. Uh, so you mentioned there, you love examples from sales reps. I love examples as well in my, yeah. in my podcast episodes. So again, the reason I point on to Envision is because I love that you almost started from that ground zero point. Was there an example you had of a positioning strategy or a competitive message that you, you managed to come up with that just really landed? Yeah, there was one that ended up being at at kind of the center of our, of our positioning across both our, our major competitors, as well as kind of that long tail um, of others. And that's, that's what made it really powerful. I have to emphasize our team didn't, you know, just sit down and have like a light bulb moment. This was, this was about distilling all these observations that we made, all these different types of customer, uh, you know, interactions and calls that we heard. There was this one idea at the center of it. So Envision was selling primarily to, to one function, digital product design. And that's a function that right now is really elevating in a lot of organizations and historically had been kind of seen as either like this craft person that's sort of off to the side, just making things pretty or something that's very downstream. And like, they just put the UI on top of what engineering has done, which is like the real work. So design now is actually becoming like a business leader. And like, there's, there's this whole set of expectations that, that, uh, that apps and experiences look and feel amazing. And design is leading that conversation. Awesome. And the way we were able to attach our positioning to that was to say, your tooling needs to now open up design for this kind of inclusive collaboration. If design is truly to become that leader around the organization. And so it's not enough just to have, you know, more powerful, more crafty tools for designers that might actually make your progress slower because now you're going to ask people to join the design process, but you're going to 
ask them to come into, into your world and, and kind of into your brain. And the, the brain of a product designer is a, is a crazy place and probably a pretty brilliant <laughs> place, but it can, it can be a little messy. Um, and so there's, there was this concept that we kind of want to have your space as a designer and then these different surfaces that are more built for collaboration. So the silhouette of that, of that position, I think actually applies to probably a lot of different products, which is about, hey, there might be a lot of other products out there that are built just for you, the person that's doing the work. But are those products, are those tools actually going to elevate your work to all the other stakeholders, all the other collaborators that are counting on it? So that was, that was one position. If you think about like sales enablement software, for example, that's sold to marketers or to product marketers often. Um, but the angle might be like, you know, are, is that something that your sellers are going to love? And that's, uh, that's kind of the twist of like, don't just buy this for yourself, but buy this for uh, the groups and the stakeholders that you're, you're actually trying to make an impact for. So that was one type of position that, um, uh, that got us a lot of mileage. That's interesting. That positioning is kind of like the pains of today of the, per- like the buyer right there that they feel themselves and then elevating that conversation to, I, I, I hate the bit, the buzzword, but like the greater business goals or the business objectives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, it's, but in their case too, it was also like, it, what made it interesting was it was about asking them to consider the perspective and the impact that they're having on other groups, but still from kind of a self-serving place, which is natural, right? Like you're not asking them to be like totally selfless and buy worse <laughs> tools for themselves. You're asking them that you're asking them to consider how creating these awesome, more purposeful, more intentionally inclusive experiences for everybody else is actually going to elevate them and their function faster than just buying you know, more, uh, more powerful tools just for themselves. So yeah, it was, it was a good, uh, good learning experience kind of trying to shape that thesis. Something, the, something interesting you brought up there too, some of these spaces, like the verticals, they're all bleeding together, especially in B2B yeah. tech. There's so much crossover. And so, like you said, there might be competitors you're not even aware of. And that's why you sort of, you mentioned you've got like competitive positioning for those direct competitors that you yeah. know, you know, the, the main, the main ones. And then also kind of these more broader positioning statements that position you against anyone that may yeah. or may not come up. Is there, um, is there a different process behind each of those positioning statements or like, how does that work? Having like your kind of broader positioning and then your specific to the, the primary competitors, I suppose. Yeah. 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 They, they relate together pretty, pretty tightly and specifically. So we, we maintain here at Airtable um, it's just because it's fresh on my mind, a set of differentiators, which is the set, the set of about like 10 capabilities that we essentially ask any of our competitors to, to stack up against. And so we've, we've developed that list uh, under, the, under the sort of the, the, the pressure of the most uh, prominent competitive rivals that we have, but it's now been shaped and sharpened in such a way that like just yesterday, I got a request from a seller who said, hey, Alex, have you ever heard of such and such competitor? I had not, but I just turned to my list of differentiators and I can go do 30 minutes of web research on that competitor and see that they have some major gaps along that that set of criteria and equip the seller with that to say, hey, let's use that same list of differentiators that you know, like they're they're familiar with that set of of core differentiators um, and just hold it up to this new competitor and it becomes like this lens to expose, okay, they do have a genuine strength here. So we can kind of, you know, keep it neutral there, but they really have a major gap here and they're not working on, 
on this area or this set of set of capabilities or this part of the story at all. So we can really focus there uh, and emphasize that for the customer. So it's kind of like you, um, you might have more focused investigation and deal support with those top competitors, but you should be able to extract from that a set of competitive um, sort of positioning statements or differentiators that are uh, that are more generalizable and that can be held up to any of those uh, tier two, tier three competitors as they emerge. Feels like that's a very efficient method for someone. Like you mentioned, a lot of people <laughs> running compete are solo teams or they don't yeah. have the necessary resources. And I think part of being efficient there is you need to really understand your own company and your own, the value you bring first and foremost, before we yep. even dive into how we're going to talk about competitors. That is the key. So th- this, this competitive positioning sort of moment has a very specific place in the rest of our company and product story. Like there's a, there's a very specific point to, to keep it really tactical in our pitch deck where the competitive positioning goes. And it goes clearly and intentionally after we have described our view of how the market is changing, our view of the real problems to be solved by teams, um, then into how, how we do it, how our technology actually supports that. And then once that rubric has been established, once those criteria have been established, which is of course you know, loaded with our differentiation, this is what we believe makes our product unique, then if necessary, we hold the competition up to that test and expose their gaps. So like you mentioned, your, your competitive career so far has been a lot of trial and error, a lot of learning by doing. Yeah. What were some of the lessons you took from your time at Envision and now you've been at Airtable for just over a year now? Not quite. Yeah. Just over six months, actually. I joined oh, in wow. April. Yeah. So yeah. What are the lessons you've kind of brought over and also your time at Eigenworks too? Yeah. Yeah. And even before that, uh, lots of lessons learned. Um, I'd say the biggest one is even if you don't have a formal team around CI, maybe you are a team of one or a team of, you know, one third of, <laughs> of one PMM's time that it absolutely takes, uh, it takes a team and it takes also this, this really interesting mix of patience and bias for action, bias for sort of, sort of urgency and to do this well. So what I mean there is like, take the example of writing a news briefing about a new competitor product launch. I had some formative experiences where as a team of one, I was like, all right, this is my time to sort of jump on this news, get it out to the company, provide my hot take, and everyone is going to you know, appreciate the clarity that I bring, the point of view that I bring. And I didn't run it by anyone uh, before I just blasted it out to like sales team and, and exec team and marketing team. And what are the takes when a couple of the takes I had in there were very questionable um, in terms of what we what we should do about it. Basically, you know, I was I was getting into like we should uh, not pursue like this whole chunk of the market because of this competitive move, like way sort of rushing ahead, giving the competitor a little too much credit. But this, the specific point of analysis wasn't the lesson. It was to do this well, I need to actually have kind of an inner circle, even though I'm the only one that's formally tasked with this. Uh, I need to establish a working group that I can, I can run these new perspectives, news events, new changes, just new thoughts on how we position uh, to run those things by before we go and broadcast. And it's, it, it took sort of overcoming a bit of a, a personality bias of mine where I want to I get something out there. I want to uh, you know, have a kind of a bias for, for just getting things out there even when they're incomplete, which, which often serves me really well. But in, in those cases, you want to have that pause 
collect some feedback, you know, give it 24 hours, like step away from it a little bit, and then, you know, send out your briefing on the competitive uh, news event, the competitor product launch, competitor acquisition, whatever it is, that shakeup. And it's so powerful if you do that, because now my, my briefings look totally different. It'll be like, hey, I'll send the first draft to that team. But then we'll work on it and they'll they'll have like they'll have great quotes and points of view for me. We'll work those in. I send it out. I'm I'm like name dropping six people in the briefing that all helped me uh, sort of pull this together. And so there's a moment of recognition for them. But then I'm also like quoting them. Like if it's a competitor product launch, for example, I might go to the product manager on our team that works on sort of the most like closely related section of our product. And ask for their take and ask for how it, you know, intersects or, or doesn't inter- or diverges from our product plans. Okay, now I can like quote that person in there, like with their take. So it actually looks a lot more like an actual news article. Like you've collected quotes and perspectives from people that, um, that, that, that know what they're talking about. And you, you're the one that's kind of just, just giving it some shape and structure. What does this mean for customers? What might this mean for us? That was a big lesson of the, the importance of that inner circle and the importance of that just taking those the moments of pause and moments for feedback at the right times, especially when, uh, you know, my biases were just telling me to, to get something out there and uh, maybe a little, a little careless at times. What was the reaction when you were flying free, solo mission, <laughs> bang, here it is. The key it was, to uh, unlocking all of our business. It was a, it was like emails from my boss saying, Hey, can you give me a quick call? Like you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to be on the receiving end of those, uh, those ones too often. It's, um, I think it also ties to when you're talking about kind of the lesson learned from that situation. It's like you said, I think at the start, it's almost like being a journalist. I mean, yeah. I, uh, I, I actually kind of studied in journalism. So it's kind of a, funny, oh, there you go. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's kind of that background is why, why would they listen to me? You need, I mean, I think I'm a smart guy. I think I have a good perspective, but the more people you bring in, the more expert opinions that are, like you mentioned there, yeah. product manager. If we're talking about competitors product launch, let's bring our product manager in. Yeah. The person that knows our product more intimately than anyone else in the business. Yeah. And then it lends you credibility. It kind of, This is going to kind of dovetail into the second piece of, I guess, the puzzle here when you're talking about putting Intel actually into action now is the enablement side of things. Yeah. So when you mentioned there, your your small team what does that usually look like and how do you start to bring them into the fold to care about compete and to be sort of your i don't know the the person you can tap on the shoulder quickly when when something pops up how does that look and how does that work that inner circle specifically yeah yeah so i asked about six questions in one there but you had my mind you got it yeah so that part of it we have formalized a little bit so we've got this kind of, we call it the competition tiger team where it's, it's a, it's like a semi-formal part of your, your role. It's like joining like a committee or like a task force here where, you know, we've, we've got kind of our own Slack channel. We meet regularly and we're, we're just constantly refining our positioning. We're sharing examples that each of us has picked up. So we have representatives from, from the sales organization, from CSM, from product uh, marketing in there as well. And yeah, I mean, we, we basically asked them sort of semi-formally, like, are you willing to, to sort of add this to your day job of this kind of monthly commitment to, 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 to bring new perspectives, bring questions, examples to this, to this forum, um, to be the first, uh, the first set of eyes on any new competitive briefings and provide your feedback, provide your perspective, provide those kind of quotes to, to, uh, before it goes out to the rest of the organization. Um, and people have been really receptive. I mean, it's, you probably find, I would guess people listening 
there is probably a small group of, of sellers that are coming to you more often or product managers that are coming to you more often than the rest of them that are particularly keen on all things competition. Maybe you're thinking of specific people uh, when I say that. So those are probably the people that you want to start with. And, and they may be, uh, you know, they're, they're probably already spending uh, that chunk of time and, and brain power on all things competition. You might just ask them to, to channel it in this, uh, this specific, more sort of loosely structured way. Yeah, it makes it more effective for the seller too. Actually, that's funny. I was thinking of a data point when I was looking through the Salesforce state of sales report. I believe that's what it is called. And it was like, what is the number one, not time waste, but I can't remember exactly how they phrase it, but it was like sellers are spending a lot of their time away from their day job researching competitor activity. Oof, and yeah. it's like, it's great that there are sellers doing that, like you mentioned, but how do you tap into those people and be like, hey, I'm here. Yeah. Can, I love that you're still interested in this, but don't have to take it on yourself. And now you've got like That's eight right. different sellers making eight different competitive positioning yes. statements. Come, come, come bring it to me. I'll, that I'll take that, we that can, load off your back. We can help with that for sure. I mean, it, there's a, I, I think a, a, a really important difference between sellers spending time learning about competition and about the market, but they should be learning from resources that have already been curated by someone in the CI role or in a PMM role, not having to go to first principles and do that research themselves. There are, they're also going to be learning so much by doing, by getting into those customer conversations. And we do want them spending some portion of their time and energy sharing that back, or at least have a way to capture it. Um, that's important too. But yeah, not, not from scratch research uh, from our sellers. That's not the right use of their time. Totally. Um, so let's get into this kind of enablement part. I mean, we've just started to get into it. Is there, I think first and foremost, you need credibility with sales to yeah. use the competitive messaging, the competitive positioning. Totally. How do you handle this? How do you go about this? Have you had pushback before? Yeah, they have to be involved. They have to be involved from, from the beginning. So again, it could be like that, that sort of formal kind of tiger team structure where you've got a few sellers involved. And then when you go to, uh, soft launch, or you know, you join the enablement session, and you're you're announcing battle cards are out there. Share the stage, right? You share the stage with those sellers that helped you create them. Maybe you even you you play the 30 second clip of the best uh, the best customer call that you could find where this this positioning was actually being used. Watch the watch your Zoom chat blow up as sellers kind of give kudos to that person who you know really has now shown them what good looks like. Um, in some ways, again, you're you're more so just acting as kind of the, the, the curator providing some structure to it. And then you, you do have to have that kind of that discipline to, to distill it down. Once you've got the piles of detail and the piles of anecdotes and different opinions, you then do have to be the one to apply some pressure to it and get it down to the most crucial talking points. That's, that's really your role. Um, but when that's been done well, and again, with that right mix of patience and urgency, it might feel easier to not book those five meetings with sellers and just ship the battle card as is because you think you've done all the research, um, but it's much less likely to stick that way. And so uh, it's that right mix of patience, but still with that bias for action. The times where I've had, I've had pushback or there's, there's, there's disagreement or there's a lack of adoption, it's, it's almost always been because I, I, I probably rushed that process. I rushed that process of, of getting not only the sort of sellers and CSMs involved, but other perspectives from around the organization. Um, and then and sort of reminding myself of that role of, of being the, the curator and the one to distill and clarify it, not necessarily have to be the one to, to sort of create it. Um, and then, and just, you know, like reveal my brilliant creation to the, <laughs> to the organization. It doesn't work that way. 
And so if I've strayed from that path, uh, that's almost always been the reason for, for pushback. Sometimes you get pushback as well on the format of the content and not necessarily the content itself. Like it'll be, Alex, we need this as a, as a PDF rather than as a, you know, a wiki page or whatever. Um, that's kind of a different conversation. Like uh, that's, that's more about like, okay, we do agree that our positioning is, is there, but now it's about how does it get out to the team? Uh, you know, giving them a chance to practice. And, you know, I agree the positioning looks good on paper, but the team doesn't really get it. Okay, that's a different conversation um, if you're running into that kind of resistance or, or barrier to adoption. And that's where the partnership with your enablement team, if you do have one, if you're at that stage, really becomes crucial. Because I do find it's important to define some handoff point between yourself as the subject matter expert and the enablement team on, on in terms of sales and CSM enablement who's actually going to develop the programming to give the teams a, a chance to practice that. It's a very different skill set uh, to be the one to develop competitive positioning versus be the one to train uh, folks on competitive positioning. Often we have to do both, uh, especially if, if enablement is maybe just getting started or doesn't exist at your company. But if you've got an enablement function, that's the way to uh, partner up with them. I can attest this. The customers I've talked to, other uh, competitive leads that I've spoke to that really nail this is when they have that just tight relationship with the yeah, sales or revenue enablement. I remember I had uh, folks from Clarion and it was actually cool to have both perspectives. So in, in your example, then what what is your partnership with the sales or revenue enablement team? What does that look like? So there's a few different channels. So um, kind of the, the centerpiece is of course, those, those battle cards, those self-serve always on resources. The way that gets developed um, we've sort of covered. It's this really collaborative, always on process. We've got that inner circle. We've got a way of listening to sales and customer success calls that are always happening. We're picking up new angles from that, always getting a little better. We push updates to those regularly. Uh, and then we also do more hands-on training on the competitive positioning and on the battle cards regularly as well. And so we have a broader sales methodology here called command of the message and differentiate competitive differentiation has a very specific sort of box that it goes in within that methodology, that helps me a lot. So our enablement people speak command of the message and all of their enablement programming is based on getting that methodology out to the team and refining it and refreshing this area this week and then this area the next week. So competitive differentiation has a very clear role to play within that framework. So it works great. So there's more hands-on training and, and we do some role plays and things like that with, with different groups uh, where we kind of embrace the awkwardness of role play in the name of of giving the team a, a low stakes chance to practice rather than practice on their prospects. And then uh, again, of course, we have, uh, we have this ongoing discussion company-wide in the full competitive Intel Slack channel, not just that inner circle. That's its own sort of private space where we're, we're always just uh, you know, batting around new ideas and, uh, and talking through competitor news when it first breaks. That happens over there. But we have a competitive Intel channel that anyone in the company can join. I know this is a really common and popular tactic, but I'll, I'll include it as part of the kind of the methods in the process um, for, for both collecting uh, new insights, new ideas, new angles from the team and communicating uh, sort of our, our next rev or our next refinement of competitive positioning, new resources uh, out to the group. And visibility, I guess, That's as right. well. The yeah. fact that there's just a channel there too. It, like, I, mean, for, I mean, we're in my clue is in the world of competitive. So obviously the, the competitive channel is always bumping on Slack. But sure. I've heard from other folks as well that like, the competitive channel, if you open that up, it's often like one of the most popular channels you'll have in the organization. Yeah. It's worth sort of getting into a little bit more. It's such an important tool. It's so simple on the surface just to have a cut channel called competition. There's a lot of nuance to doing it well, I feel. 
there's, um, you know, without a, a sort of a competitive Intel curator, a common uh, sort of behavior you might see is someone just dropping a link to some competitor news into the competition Slack channel and either just like freaking out about it and saying like, this is brutal. We're going to, we you know, they're taking away our differentiation <laughs> or maybe people respond to it and say, this doesn't matter at all. We should be totally ignoring them. Com competition is just a distraction. There's like these two extremes. The, comp the, the conversation can just completely go off the rails. I call it the Lincoln stink. Like someone just drops a link, no context, no real analysis or point of view on it. And the conversation just gets messy. So what we try to do instead is we don't control what people post, but we're always monitoring that channel to, to jump in on the conversation. And both myself and that inner circle competition tiger team are uh, going to be the first ones to get in. And if someone has posted something about the competition and hasn't given that kind of context on it or their take on it or what stood out to them, we'll just ask, hey, Adam, thanks for sharing this. What stood out to you? What do you think this might mean for customers? And people are often... Uh, more than happy to sort of elaborate and have that a little bit more thoughtful conversation rather than one that jumps to either those extremes of freaking out about it or totally dismissing it. We're screwed. Everything's on fire. That's right. Let's close up shop. It's almost yeah, Christmas time anyways. Down. Everyone go home. Yeah. <laughs> what about, yeah, in terms of that like enablement framework as well, you kind of talked about, so you have kind of the ever existing battle cards and then you have like yep. role play sessions. What about within that framework, sort of what you take on and what the enablement team takes on within those two pieces? Yeah, that's a line that we're, um, we're still refining. Our enablement team is, is hiring a lot. So they're actually getting ready to, to take on more of that actual training and programming. But so far it's been uh, the enablement team kind of owning the overall enablement calendar. So Alex, we think the competition uh, session that you're running should come before we get into this subject, but after the team has already heard about and feels more confident in this subject. That is really important. That's in a really important kind of editorial role that they play. They own like the scheduling and logistics of those sessions too. And then they're crucial for giving me feedback uh, when I'm preparing kind of that lesson plan on what is actually on our sellers' minds and what are the, what are they feeling and how can we make this as applicable and practical for them as possible? I, I feel like at this point, I've, uh, I've worked with so many great enablement people that when I'm working on enablement resources or, or, or sort of sessions, I, I hear their questions like ringing in my head just as I'm writing. What's a seller actually supposed to do with this? What are they actually gonna say? What does a seller need to know? What do they not need to know? What can be as a leave behind? What can be appendix? How do we get this down to one slide? These are the really important and constant questions that great enablement managers are, are always asking. Um, and so I feel like I've kind of internalized a lot of those now at this point in my career. You've got the editor brain in the back right. of all times. Yeah. What about, what about those role play sessions? How do you get the most out of those? What do you actually do? Because I've heard this talked about a bunch. Like, yeah, do some kind of competitive yeah. situations, but is there any advice you'd have on to get the most out of that with your sellers? Yeah, I'll give you a few key points. Um, one is smaller groups. So the bigger the group, the easier it is for people to kind of just fade into the background and into the <laughs> audience. Uh, with that smaller group, then setting the expectation that you want to have everybody participate once. And then I have some kind of specific, like uh, specific formats that I use to kind of get everybody going rather than ask one person to uh, you know, stand and deliver like the entire, the entire response. I try to also create a customer situation that is realistic, but not doomed. Like it's, it's interesting that sometimes I've gotten feedback on those sessions that they were too easy, which I found really funny. Like I, I kind of gave them a situation where 
the customer was evaluating a competitor, but they were still very early. And they were like, well, Alex, sometimes we, we find out that they are evaluating a competitor or they're thinking of, of churning from us and, and going to a competitor really late in the process. And I'm like, I don't really want to give you chances to practice when you find out too late. Like I want you to find out earlier. So let's maybe work on the discovery skills for how we could find that out earlier and then address it when we find it out earlier. So there's an element too of like, not necessarily solving what feels to be the most like pressing and urgent question on your sellers or CSM's minds, but on what you actually believe is the more important problem to be solving for them, right? If it's, hey, we're finding out last minute that you know customers are looking to churn, you could help them manage that to an extent, but then you know maybe more of your more of your energy should be spent on helping them discover it earlier and then address yeah. it. That kind of thing. It's sort of like almost is, is a little meta, but going back to what you first talked about, like the pains of today that you're feeling. But like, let's let's remove ourselves from that. Let's prevent even getting to that situation. That's how can right. We, how can we? We always talk about with like the battle card structures, kind of like how do you spot them early, and how That's what right. are those first kind of um, quick dismiss points that you can kind of be able to set yourself up against them. This is such an important point. So there's spotting them early. Even before that, how are we setting the rules, the evaluation criteria for this buying process so that our differentiation will be heavily weighted and well understood and, and highly valued by the buyer before competition even enters the picture? How are we designing that rubric, right? This is kind of what I talked about with uh, maintaining a set of differentiators that you can hold up against any new competitor that happens to emerge. That That is the set of buying criteria. This is part of the broader command of the message uh, methodology that uh, that I was touching on, but it's all about sort of setting up this, um, this, this shared definition with the buyer on the, the real problem we're solving and the capabilities needed to solve it. And those capabilities should, should be really intentionally mapped to our differentiation such that if a competitor does emerge in the process early, middle, or late stage, they're playing the game by our rules. My last one is one of the struggles I hear from product marketers when they're leading competitive enablement is sometimes getting bogged down in ad hoc requests. So what is that? What percentage of your time do you think you're dealing with ad hoc requests? Uh, I know that you actually feel sometimes you feel comfortable like getting hand like yeah. hands on deal support. So have you experienced that where you've been bogged down and what's kind of your approach to this? Yeah, let's get into this, right? I've heard this too, where uh, product marketers or CI people kind of feel this resistance to, uh, you know, just getting these one-off requests from sales. I need help with this specific deal. I need help with this specific competitor. A couple points on this. One is, I don't know how else you then expect to build that high resolution empathy for both your buyers and your sellers, other than getting involved in actual deals, either, or perhaps both, in my opinion, both, by getting involved with, with kind of the, the individual deal support with your sellers and or with win-loss, right? So studying them after the decision has been made, but you get that full resolution of, of the story. So you can study them while they're alive or and or you study them while they are, uh, um, once they're closed. That's one. The other one is when you get those one-off requests, it should not feel like you have to now start from scratch, let's say it's a new competitor that hasn't emerged before, that you have to go and do this whole research sprint on them, you should have defined competitive positioning that is at the center of your function. This is kind of the thing you're always maintaining so that you can hold that new competitor up against 
your opinion of what a product in your category needs to do, the real problem to be solved, and assess them. And then once you've done it once, that gets added to the bank of knowledge, whether it's your battle cards or some other competitive resource for the next person to, uh, to enjoy that learning as a self-serve resource. So it's always additive. It's not like you just open these tickets and close them and nobody ever gets to kind of learn from it. Again, the system, the assets are always getting richer and richer through that process of the, either the individual deal support or the win-loss. But it's so crucial in my experience to be, uh, to be willing and eager to get involved in the, in the, the, the full resolution of, of actual buying decisions, particularly in B2B. There's so much to unpack when there's multiple players and multiple stakeholders involved, both on the buying side and the selling side. And, and it's, you know, maybe it takes, it takes weeks or months to make this decision. There's a pilot stage and demos, and there's all these different moments throughout the process. You have to get that full story. Yeah. And that's why I kind of brought this question up last, because I think it's one of those things is I hear that I will hear that as an issue or something that's been a huge pain point for a product marketer. And I, I, I see it. I feel it. Like I understand what, where they're coming from, but like you mentioned, it's like one-off requests aren't a bad thing, but you need to have the competitive strategy in place. You need your competitive yeah. positioning place in place. You need like system and sort of the infrastructure in place. And then, like you mentioned, these one-off things, like I always, I can even see every time you mention like a one-off request, you, you light up a little bit. You're like, sweet, let's plug them in. Let's test them. Yeah. Let's see where they fit. Let's see right. what, what, what criteria they actually do match with us. Where do they fall short? How can we tackle them? that's that's what i find these one off requests can if you have that infrastructure in place they they're like i think you mentioned it additive they're adding you build them yeah. into this pre-existing sort of positioning and strategy right. that you've built that's right yeah it, in in a way also it shows you where the edge of your existing knowledge your existing understanding is whether again it's with a new competitor or maybe the other one other type of request that i sometimes get is hey alex i'm up against this familiar competitor i looked at the battle card but I'm in a little bit of a different situation this time. I'm dealing with a different persona than we deal than we usually deal with. This customer is um, sort of pushing me on a different set of buying criteria than is kind of our you know standard set of capabilities that we want to assert. Can you help me navigate that uh, in that nuance? Yeah, for sure. Right. Again, we have this we have this foundation. We have this core set of positioning, and we're just doing this last kind of five to ten percent of modification for that unique context. So it's, it's, it's a very additive, very generative process when it's done well. Even, you know, the requests, the kind of cliche of like people asking you where resources are um, and not just finding the link themselves. I mean, that's, that's a two second investment from you to take the link off of your bookmarks and send it to them and say, here it is for your future reference. And now hopefully that's going to stick with them. That also that, that, I don't think that should annoy you that much. I don't think that should be that big a deal <laughs> at a point, you know, it is important to kind of draw that line. Like I've emphasized how how valuable it can be for you to get involved with uh, with individual deals and actually actually joining those calls sometimes and being the one to deliver competitive positioning. But I have had to have the conversation a couple of times with reps where I say, okay, if we get a little, if we try to do this every time where I'm going to be the one joining the call to deliver the competitive positioning, I'm going to become a bottleneck for you. I don't want that to be the case. So I'll do this one with the agreement that you'll take it from here. I'll always join an internal prep call, but I do need you to get to a point where uh, you feel enabled to deliver that message yourself. If that's not the case, let's talk through why you don't feel enabled. But actually seeing it all the way through and joining customer calls, yes, some, that's a big 
you know, investment of time, I think it's worth it to do some, but sometimes you do have to, uh, to draw the line there. But that's kind of how I think about it. Uh, my bias uh, is, is probably pretty clear that I, my bias is, is to, to say yes and be supportive when you get those one-off requests. These are people that, that are trying, that are interested in, in the work, and we want to be able to channel that and not uh, you know, create hostility or resistance. I think if people take some of the lessons that you've kind of shared here and some of your own experiences is that you can deal with ad hoc requests doesn't come at the expense of scalability. Because I think scalability is the key part that product marketers want to solve. Because like you said, they could be doing, this could be one of five other things they're doing. So that's, that's a really good lesson. And again, I think as well, hands-on support, visibility, trust, like those are like, like implicitly you're building that by demonstrating that it works, the competitive positioning, demonstrating that you're confident in that space. That's a great distillation, Adam, because I think that's exactly the tension that people are feeling when they get those one-off requests. I want to be working on the the self-serve resource, or I want to be working on the bigger program or the more strategic thing, not this one-off thing. And I think that's been the big lesson for me is that it's it's all related together. When when you when you've done enough of the the really hands-on, maybe tactical feeling stuff, you can step up to that broader resource or that bigger strategic question with so much more rich perspective. And again, then you keep going, you keep taking those one-off requests that are at the edge, at the frontier of your knowledge. And it just makes the the central kind of um, uh, store of knowledge that much richer. That was awesome, Alex. We covered nearly everything under the sun and I'll definitely be bringing you back on again to cover a whole lot more, depending on what the listeners want to learn about. So shoot us both messages. What, what you want Alex to dive into next again, product marketing Alliance, the competitive intelligence certified course led by Alex with plenty of other competitive experts. Alex, where can people reach you as well? I'm on LinkedIn, Alex, A L E X McDonald, M C D O N N E L L uh, marketing and competitive Intel lead at, uh, at Airtable. And, uh, you can also follow my podcast, which is called dance battle, the competitive intelligence podcast. I think it's, it's, it's the two of us for now, Adam, we got, we got to, <laughs> we want to get the, the competitive Intel kind of content podcast, uh, all things sort of, um, you know, open, open learning content going a little more. So join us, yeah. uh, join more us, the join merrier. the conversation. The Absolutely. Yeah. All right. With that said, we'll catch everyone next week. And thank you so much, Alex. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Adam.